You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. And it's wonderful to see each one here this morning as we head into the Advent Christmas season. What a privilege and a freedom it is that we can come together to worship. This is the first Christmas in a number of years when we've been able to come without having to have restrictions. And as I've often said, I think we should never take public worship again for granted. This morning and for the next two weeks, we're going to discover the wonder and beauty of the Christmas story as found in Luke chapter 2. Together we want to experience again the love, the joy, and the hope of the Advent season. This morning in particular, I want to focus on the theme of love as found in the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. So keep your Bible turned to that passage. C.S. Lewis is in a very intriguing book called The Four Loves, addresses the fact that in our English language, we use one word, love, to describe a broad range of intimate and intense human emotion. The impact of having so much meaning packed into one word can have the effect of actually reducing the meaning and the clarity of the concept of love. So that love becomes a kind of a nebulous word, a feel-good word, but sort of like jelly on the wall, you're never exactly clear what it means. So Lewis points out that in the Greek language of the New Testament, there are four words, four major words that are used for love. And all of them translated into English and translated into our English Bible are translated as the word love. Hence the name of the book, The Four Loves. The first word, the primary word in the Greek that is used for love is the word storge, which is empathy love, affection. It's the love of family, a parent's love for a child, an adult child's love for their aging parent. The second word for love that's often used in the Greek language is the word philia. Philia, friend love or brotherly love, from where we get our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, although that does not apply to their hockey team. It's the bond between close friends. It's the connection that overcomes distance, time, and differences. The third word that's used, and the one that is used in the greatest amount in our language, is the word eros, romantic love, being in love. It includes the sexual, but it goes far beyond it. It transcends the sexual. It's the passionate love of youth. It's the strong bonds of aged relationship. And then there's a fourth word that's very unique to the New Testament, and is used by the New Testament writers on numerous occasions, which is the word agape, unconditional love. God love, love that exists regardless of the changing circumstances of life, that it exists even in the face of the greatest difficulty. So if the story of Christmas is anything, it is the story of love. Love in its multifaceted beauty, affection love, friendship love, romantic love, and unconditional love. So let's begin in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 and look at the passage together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world 
should be registered. Or another version says that all the world should be taxed. Or another, that a census be taken. Registered, census, taxed. The meaning is the same. The people were to be registered for tax purposes. The big government in Rome, and it was a big government, needed more money. I suppose we could say some things never change. But I want you to make note of a name in that verse, and it's the name Caesar Augustus. For even though the story of Christmas is about love, this passage begins with the reality of human power. Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man in the entire known world, and he was not afraid to use his power. A number of years ago in 2012, Time Magazine every year puts together a listing, and they'll do it again this year, of the most influential people in the world in 2021, or coming up 2022. Back in 2012, Time Magazine published a book, a nice big thick book, called The 100 Most Influential People in All of History. You know, you think about it, in the world today we just passed 8 billion people who are alive right now. So there's billions of people who have lived, and Time Magazine tried to cull it down to the 100 most influential people, people who have impacted culture and history. And Augustus rated as number 30 out of 100, and out of the billions that existed. But his is not a story of love. Augustus' story is one of intrigue, manipulation, and power. But, but I run a little ahead of myself. Let me get back to Augustus. Augustus was not born with the name Caesar Augustus. He was born with the name Octavian. He was the son of wealthy Roman parents. And he had a very influential and powerful uncle, great uncle, whose name was Julius Caesar, the supreme Roman ruler. And in 43 BC, when Julius Caesar is murdered in the Ides of March in the Forum in Rome, and afterwards his will is read, Julius Caesar passed on his name and his power to his favorite great-nephew, Octavian. And in short order, Octavian demolished his rivals, including Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, but that's a story for another day. And in 40 BC, Octavian becomes the Roman emperor, and he was able to manipulate the Roman Senate, which was a Republican Senate, to make him the emperor for life. There's a few guys around today, like Putin and his kin and Kith, who would love to have that kind of power, wouldn't they? And he would reign unchallenged for 50 years. Now, in a display of pomp, a number of years later, he decided to change his name. He was Octavian Caesar. He'd received the Caesar from his great uncle Julius. But he thought, hmm, I'd like a better name. So he changed his name to Augustus. And Augustus means one worthy of honor and respect, from Octavian to Caesar Augustus. Oh, yes. He also managed to get a month of the year named after him. You got it. August. Because his great uncle, Julius Caesar, had got another month named after him, July. And during the reign of Caesar Augustus, his empire stretched from Spain in the west to what is today Iraq in the east, North Africa in the south, and France in the north. And for the first time in hundreds of years, there was no conflict 
between the empires. You know, there'd been conflict between the Greeks and the Persians and the Assyrians. That was finished. And the Pax Romana, or called the Pax Augustus, which means the peace of Augustus, affected the whole world. For through the power of his Roman legions, he suppressed the Germanic tribes, and through the power of his politics, he made peace with rival nations. And if foreign kings would pay him respect and tribute, he allowed them to stay on their throne, and that was the gig of Herod the Great of Judea. Caesar Augustus built roadways for hundreds of kilometers so his legions could move easily from one area to another. He raised magnificent buildings built of marble. If any of you have been to Rome, the ruins of those are still there today. He placed governors like Quirinius in distant lands. But all of this took money, lots of money. Where to get the money? Why tax? Tax almost everything. And what better to tax than people in the distant lands? They're the ones that are most likely not to complain, and if they do, no one will listen. And so in places like Judea, he needed to register the citizens because to tax people, you need to know they exist and get them a tax number. And so the powerful Caesar Augustus orders a proper census to be done, including the distant territories of Judea. And so the powerless peasants of a distant land under threat of punishment register for the tax census. Could there be a greater contrast? The power of Augustus, the 30 most, 30th most influential man who ever lived, and two ordinary citizens, Mary and Joseph, who were a target of Augustus' tax program. Let's continue the story. Luke chapter 2, verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Bethlehem was his hometown. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, or the old King James says, who was great with child. Joseph is one of the most remarkable men in the New Testament. He's the kind of man that all of us want as a friend. He's dependable. His word is his bond. He's honest. He gets things done. You can count on him. And his relationship with Mary is strong. He loved her with a romantic, with an eros love. Mary was the one he wanted to spend his entire life with. And so Matthew in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 we encounter the trauma that Joseph experienced when he discovered his beloved is pregnant and he is not the father. C.S. Lewis points out that Eros romantic love is not all good. It can have a vicious side to it. And the anger and bitterness of betrayal of a lover knows little bound. But not so Joseph. He is unwilling to hurt his beloved, for not only was Mary his eros love, she was his philia love. She was still his friend, and he did not want to put her to shame. Now, I should add, I'm not much of a marriage counselor, so let's just be clear about that, okay? But here's some scriptural words of wisdom from a great character in the Bible to all of you who are unmarried this morning. And here it is. Don't just marry your lover, marry your friend. Do you get that? 
because when the love dims, the friendship still grows. And so protective and loyal Joseph travels with Mary as they head to their hometown of Bethlehem to follow the edict of Caesar Augustus. Now there's another piece to this story. Look at verse 7 that I wonder about. In verse 7 it says, Jesus was laid in a manger, an animal feeding trough, because there was no room for him in the inn. Now sometimes I wonder, is this suggesting, and I confess this is speculative, is this suggesting that there was some advanced planning on Joseph's part that didn't just quite turn out? That Joseph had tried to get a room in the inn, but it wasn't available. Now, just a little aside here. The word used here for inn is not the same one. The story of the Good Samaritan, you remember, here for inn can also be translated a guest room. It's actually the same word used in the Bible for the upper room, the guest room, where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples. And since Joseph's background was Bethlehem, did he have some extended friends or, or family who lived in Bethlehem? And he, he knew they had a guest room, and he thought that would be a good spot for us to stay. But here's just what's clear. It goes beyond my speculation. Whatever the intended was, it wasn't available. This past summer, Sharon and I took a trip to northern Ontario, and uh, I, I'd never been up past North Bay, and so we took a little trip up to North Bay and Temiskamy and Kirkland Lake, Cobalt, fascinating place. I won't bore you with all the details. Uh, just let me bring this up. At July 1st holiday, we've made it a little tradition to always find a place where they've got like a spectacular Canada Day celebration. And so over the years, we've had some fun celebrations, watching fireworks out over White Rock Bay in BC, going to events on the East Coast. One of the most memorable was one Canada Day, we went to a fireworks in Rocky Harbor, Newfoundland. And I was pretty sure someone was going to get killed, but that's another, another story. Anyhow, we discovered that North Bay has a spectacular Canada Day event. And uh, they shoot the fireworks out over Lake Nipissing and... So I, that Friday night, I, for coming home, I booked a room in a hotel right on the edge of the lake. And my beloved and I, were, you know, we'd pull out our lawn chairs and we would cradle our hot chocolates and we would marvel over the magnificent uh, fireworks. What could go wrong? Well, it was Friday afternoon and we'd been up in uh, Temiskaming and we came down the, the east side of the lake, the Quebec side, which was really quite fascinating. We had a great time, but again, another story, another day is ply, and I had my conference, all that stuff, right? So I go into this mom-and-pop hotel, romantic little place right on the lake, to claim our cozy little Canada Day hideaway. No rooms available, the woman responded. But, said I, I have a written confirmation I received from you. Oh, she said, are you Harold? I, I said, I am. She said, oh, there was a Harold came here yesterday and took the room. Oh. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. Uh, but, said I, but to no avail, she, she offered me a room for the following weekend. And by the way, she did not offer me a room in her barn. But that's, you know. Now, after the shockwave wore off, I realized it could have been a lot worse because Sharon was not, as the King James Version says, great with child. <laughs> and after discovering, you know, cell phone, we tried calling every hotel within 100 kilometers. There wasn't a, you know, as just drove and all that stuff. Other people wanted to sit and watch the fireworks. So we just drove the five hours home to our lovely little place in Elmira. It isn't as far as Nazareth. 
and an SUV beats a donkey any day, no room in the inn. Anyhow, continue the story with me. Luke 2, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. Now, in my time as a health practitioner, I have heard some pretty outrageous birth stories. Women who gave birth in a car on their way to the hospital or in the foyer of the apartment just didn't think the baby would come so quickly. I always think, why didn't you stay home? But anyhow, that's another thing. And I'm sure if I were to ask this morning, we have quite a few mothers here this morning, including mothers whose memories are very fresh. And I have a feeling if we were to have a testimony time, we would have some pretty crazy birth stories right here in our room. But this story of Mary's child is about as strange as it gets. Giving birth to your first child in an animal shelter and laying him in a manger, a feeding trough, for a bed. But you know, there's this wonderful little comment in the story. It says she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, the special clothing especially for newborns. Even in the most dire of circumstances, that little newborn is wrapped just the same as if he'd been born in the best hospital in our country. And that manger becomes as warm as cozy as a crib in a castle. The amazing love of a mother for her child. The unbreakable bond between a mother and her baby. The affection of mothering that cannot be diminished, even by the sights and smell of manure in a barn. Listen, love is not always clean and perfumey. This love is just as real, even in the most difficult of situations. Now look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 11. There's the philea and eros love of Joseph for Mary. There's the storge love of Mary for her child. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, says the angel, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For the baby born in the animal shelter, the baby laying in the manger, was not just Mary's firstborn child. That baby was also God's gift of a savior. He is Christ, the Lord, the Son of God come to live among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation in the flesh, in a body that God came to us in the person of Jesus and has lived among us. This is God's gift of love, his agape love, his unconditional love, his love giving even if it was to be rejected. Now, I find it interesting that in the birth story of the Savior, much Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled. That's fascinating, isn't it? The Old Testament predicted he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah predicted he'd be born of a virgin. It's predicted in numerous places he would be a descendant of David. But here's what I find most intriguing about this verse. There is no Old Testament prophecy predicting he would be born in an animal shelter. There is no Old Testament prophecy saying he'd be laid in a manger. He didn't have to be born there. Because, so why is this fact included in the story? It's included because it happened. 
that the baby that deserved the greatest reception possible instead experienced the most humble birth that could ever be imagined. Did you get that? The baby that deserved the greatest fireworks that ever could have occurred experienced the most humble birth that I can imagine. But there's another contrast. Remember the powerful Caesar Augustus? The one that Time Magazine said was the 30th most influential person of all time? Do you know who Time Magazine rated as the most influential person of all time? That little baby laying in the manger. I saw him in the drugstore. He was a big, awkward-looking guy with work-worn hands. And he was looking at the card rack, fumbling through this section marked birthday, wife. I watched him as he picked up one or two cards and read them and put them back. And I could tell by the look on his face that he wasn't finding what he was looking for. He read another card and put it back, picked up another one, and finally, he chose one of those corny-looking cards with flowers on the front. It probably read, roses are red, violets are blue, or something like that. And I could tell by he still didn't wouldn't find what he wanted. He wasn't happy with what he had found. Finally, he sighed, and he took the card to the checkout counter. He paid the lady, and she put it in a brown paper sack, and he walked out the door. I suppose he took it home and he scrawled something simple on the bottom of it, like, Love, Pete. And he gave it to her. But it didn't say what he wanted it to say, because it just isn't easy to say the things that really matter. It isn't easy to say, I really love you. Sometimes it's hard to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Sometimes it's hard to say, I acted like a fool yesterday, Please forgive me. Sometimes it just isn't easy to say, you're the glue that holds my whole world together, and I think if it weren't for you, I might just fall apart. But you know, I think she knew. I think by the way he put an awkward arm around her shoulder, or kind of punched her on the elbow, she probably knew. And I think he knew that she'd know. Because there's something about living with someone for a very long time, and having them right where you can kind of look them in the eye, those things that are hard to say don't have to be said. Love says it. I think God tried all down through history to tell us what he wanted us to know. He sent his prophets and his teachers, and they tried, and we got part of it. We got the part about God's justice and his law, uh, we got the part about when we do bad things, we somehow have to pay. But the part that God really wanted us to know, the part that says, I really love you, we weren't getting. And God seemed so far away. But before time began, God had a plan. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my love right down there where they are, where they can see it and touch it and know it. And I'll send hold it, a little tiny vulnerable baby, so they'll have to touch it, and they'll have to hold it close. 
God's love right where we are. My Bible says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The story of Christmas has been told in a lot of ways. Prophets predicted that one day a deliverer, the offspring of King David, would come. But how like God to send an ordinary baby. How like God to choose to limit himself to a body like ours and one of our languages and our time and space. How like God when we were so broken and guilty to choose to walk with us and touch us and make us whole. And how like God to reach beyond our questions and doubts right past the exercises of our minds, on past our suspicions and cynicisms, all the way to where we are. And so the great creator, who'd been reaching all along, this God who formed the worlds with his own hands, made love become a baby, one of our very own, and spoke his word so we could understand. His love went on longing, and his love went on reaching, right past the shackles of my mind. And the word of the Father became Mary's little son, and his love reached all the way to where I am. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is what the humility of the manger is all about. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is my commandment, says Jesus, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the agape love of God, undeserved, unconditional, unfathomable. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And these powerful words, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I end with this. This is the best known verse in the whole Bible. But it is a powerful verse about love because it calls for a response. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This story of Christmas love, it needs a response. I find it very meaningful to personalize this verse. Would you like to do that this morning? To make it yours, to put your name in the text. For God so loved Harold, for God so loved Bob, for God so loved Joan, for God so loved Sharon, for God so loved Harold that he gave his only son, that if Harold believes in him, he should not perish, but have eternal life. This Christmas, make it your own. Could we with ink the ocean fill and where the skies of parchment made, where every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the love you have given to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Love which experienced humility, the simplicity of the manger. Love which lived among us. Love which reaches out to save us. Love which died for us. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. May our response today be, we love him because he first loved us. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.